Uh, we're concluding our Second Peter sermon series today, and so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn uh, to Second Peter. Uh, we're going to be in chapter three, uh, eleven down to the end of it. And um, here's my hope for today. Uh, maybe today's your first day here with us. If so, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for thanks for coming and visiting. I hope that you hope you'll come back. I hope you'll be with us. Uh, if you've been here through the whole sermon series, you might be like, man, this was kind of a confusing one, right? Like we started out with a sort of this feel good, like Jesus gave you everything you need, and then we got into false prophets, and then we got into a bunch of Old Testament stories, and uh, we were preaching about Balaam and his donkey, and, uh, and so you might be at a point where you're like, man, I've enjoyed these things individually, but I'm not sure how they all hold together as a, as a collective. And, um, and so my hope is today that by the time we get to the end of the ser sermon that you'll understand how this whole letter really cohesively holds together and how it's really telling the same truth um, through a couple different lenses, through a couple different angles. And uh, that, that ultimately, you'll be able to walk out of here today with greater clarity on, hey, God, how are you calling me to apply this truth into my life as I go forward today? How am I, what am I going to do different? What do I need to rethink about? What do I need to reprioritize? What, what sort of things do I need to do differently, because that's ultimately what we want when we come to God's Word, right? We, we want God to show us um, how He wants us to change, how He wants us to grow closer to Him, how knowledge of Him is going to change the way that we live our lives. And, and by the grace of God, I think that, uh, that today's passage really has the potential to do that for us in, in a powerful way. Um, hey, let's, let's do this. Um, let's pray and ask God to do what only He can do, and then we'll do, do the part that we can do, right? God, uh, thanks for today. Thanks for the chance to come and to uh, just study your word. I thank you uh, even for the opportunity to have the kids in here with us today because they get to, to witness how we as adults uh, worship you and how we, how we come to your word and how we listen to your word and how we sing praise to you and how we pray and um, that they get to see a picture of what that looks like. Um, Lord, uh, I pray through, through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work in our hearts that only you can do. Um, Make our hearts soft. Make us receptive. Um, just give us clarity. Uh, help the, the scales to fall from our eyes. Uh, help us um, uh, just to see clearly who you are and who you're calling us to be in light of that. And uh, use your word in a powerful way in our lives today, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, let's do this. Let's just read, uh, read uh, the, the section, and then there's, there's actually four things that I want to show you out of this passage today. So we're going to look at four different observations out of this passage. Um, so beginning in verse 11, it says this. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. And so as, as, as Peter concludes this letter, um, as I said, the, 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 there's four things that we need to look at. The first one I'll look at is we need to understand our motivation. Um, there's clearly a call to, be, uh, to live godly and holy lives here. But what, what is our motivation? And, and here's the thing. Have you guys um, have you ever heard the phrase or people talk about using the carrot or using the stick? <laughs> and it's kind of this old school reference to, you know, if you have a horse and you want the horse to go in a specific direction, there's kind of two ways you can do it. You can lure them with a carrot and say, hey, I've got something good for you. Come get it, right? Or you can whack them with a stick. And uh, uh, side note, <laughs> Trina and I were watching like the Belmont Stakes and, uh, you know, they do the four hours of coverage and all this crazy stuff and all the people make predictions that are all wrong. And then you finally get to the horse race. And so we're watching the horse race. And we're like, oh, that was kind of fun, fascinating. And they're like, hey, let's watch slow-mo going down the stretch. And you're watching them coming down the stretch slow-mo. And all of them are like, wham, wham, like just slamming. And Trina and I looked at each other like, are we okay with that? <laughs> As a society, are we all cool with this? Like, it seems like those guys are really whacking those horses, right? But um, it's something we're kind of shielded from in all the pageantry and everything. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the idea of, like, of, of hitting a horse with a stick is not popular, right? But that, that's, there's kind of two ways to motivate a horse. And in the same way with us, like, you can motivate somebody out of the threat of punishment or fear, or you can motivate somebody out of, out of showing them something to move towards. Now, obviously, in our culture, in our society, we prefer the carrot, right? We're a carrot culture. We, we desire that. That's, that's what we find to be a powerful motivation. But what I want you to see here is that uh, Peter uses both these in the message. Because in the beginning, if you remember the first, first sermon in this, uh, he says in the beginning, hey, Jesus through his divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And, and he's granted to us his precious and special and very great promises so we can become partakers of the divine nature and escape from the corruption that's in the world. And so it's all this really positive stuff where it's like, man, look what Jesus is given. He's given this incredible gift. It's yours for free. Therefore, live a godly and holy life. And you're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I am special. I am a snowflake. I'm a unicorn. Like, Jesus made me amazing, and I should go out and, like, be all that I can be. And then he's like, and then there'll be false prophets. And then there'll be people that are led away to destruction. But don't worry, because God's going to judge the, the wicked people, and he knows how to bring the good through and judge the wicked. And also, by the way, he's going to melt the whole thing down. The stars are going to melt. Right? And you're like, wow, that took a turn. Like, I thought, I thought this was like a feel-good message. And then all of a sudden, it turned to that. But look at how he concludes it. After he says all those, these things, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. What he's saying is like, hey, you've been given this incredible gift, and you can have purpose, and you can have reason, and you can, you can live a life of fullness, and you should go for that. But also, there's destruction coming, and you should flee from that. And, and whether, no matter which one is, is a greater motivator for you, the, the result is the same. You should live a godly and holy life. And so sometimes we need a little bit more of one. Sometimes we need a little bit more of the other. We, uh, Evelyn, uh, earlier this year, she had this cough, and it wouldn't go away, and so we finally took her to the doctor, and they, they did some chest x-rays, and they're like, yeah, she has pneumonia, so she's going to have to take this antibiotic, and, uh, and then it'll clear up. It'll be okay. And so we take her home, and at first we're like, oh, look at this medicine. Mmm, it smells good. Like, you're going to love this. This is going to taste like bubble gum. It's going to be great. You know, that worked once. She's like, oh, yeah, let me try that. And she's like, 
I'm never taking that again. I'm like, well, actually, you have to take it. <laughs> because if you don't take it, you're going to get more and more sick. So you have to take this. So whether you want to or not. The reality is, I mean, that, the message of the Bible is, man, there's a million great reasons to follow Jesus. Um, but, but there's also this stern warning of, like, it, it's not like we have an option. Uh, you know, if you watch the debate, they had 20 different Democratic candidates talking about, you know, pleading with the American public, like, I have the best ideas for how to take our nation forward. Please, I, I deserve your vote. And, and we do ourselves a disservice, and we do Jesus a disservice when we think about him in that sort of light. Like, he's like, hey, I know Muhammad has some ideas, and, and Buddha has some ideas, but, but my ideas are the best. You really, I, I promise you, if you just put your trust in me, I'll lead you to the best path forward. That's not what it is. <laughs> Jesus is the way. And he doesn't need to come and plead with us. He does because he loves us. He loves us so much that he comes and pleads. Like, like, like the, the father pleading with the prodigal son saying, and, and pleading with the elder brother saying, elder brother, come into the party. Let down your pride. Come, please. Now, that father didn't have to do that. He could have said, who, who, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you dishonor me by throwing a hissy fit in the middle of this party, right? God in his love, he draws near to us, but he doesn't have to. And so, so, so both these things exist in tension. Uh, I, I read a couple summers ago, I decided to read through the Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great classic of, of literature, Christian literature, and, um, and some of you may have read it in school. We have copies down in the resource room that are written in modern English, so you, you can actually read them and understand them um, if you're like me. And, um, and so I was fascinated. The first page, when I started reading it, um, there's this man who's really troubled, and he goes and he, says, he talks to his family. He says, Dear wife and children, I'm greatly troubled by this burden that torments me and grows and weighs so heavily upon me. Moreover, I've, I've received information that the city in which we live will be burned with fire from heaven. When this happens, all of us will be destroyed unless, by a way that I, did, I do not as yet see, some way of escape can be found so that we may be delivered. He's in fear of destruction. He's in fear of judgment. That's what sets him on the course uh, to, to seek a solution. And so, so he continually, he, he's feeling worse and worse. And, and one day he meets this evangelist out in the field. And, and, and he comes to him and, and the evangelist says, Sir, why are, you, why are you crying out? He answered, Sir, I understand from reading the, the book in my hand that I'm condemned to die. And after that to come to judgment, I'm not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. The evangelist asked, why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, because I'm afraid that this burden that is on my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into hell. This doesn't resonate with our culture, right? <laughs> We'd say that, that, that's fire and brimstone preaching. We laugh at that. We ridicule that. Like, oh, man, no, no, no. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be running from hell. You should be running to Jesus. And so we present it as like, man, Jesus is your friend. He's your special buddy. He's got a great plan for your life. He has a desire for you that's just going to fulfill you and build you up. And, uh, and, and the reality is, is that the both of them are true. And so where there's an imbalance in our understanding, maybe we need to understand what is our motivation to follow Jesus? 
a lot of, of, of Second Peter is a, is a recapturing and restating of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. That's what we like to hear. That's the carrot, right? Hey, if you do a good job while Jesus is away, when he comes back, if he finds you doing what you're supposed to do, he's going to set you over all his possessions. He's going to reward you. He's going to praise you for doing good work. It's going, to be a, uh, it's going to be great for you. But listen to what he goes on to say. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's true that when he comes and he finds the, the servant being obedient, he will reward the obedient servant. But if he comes and he finds the servant being disobedient, he's going to not only cast him out, he's going to cut him into pieces. So what's the motivation to be obedient? Well, both, right? <laughs> I want the reward. I don't want the punishment. But having a grounded understanding of both leads us to a more full faith. If you're not pursuing God with urgency, how does that relate to your own motivation or lack thereof? Are you too comfortable with your buddy Jesus and not enough in, in fear of, of, of the day of judgment? Or are you so in fear of the day of judgment that you've never tasted the grace, the love, and the mercy of Jesus? We have, we have to balance these things in our heart. So the first thing, we need to understand our motivation. Second thing is that we need to change our questions. When Keith preached last week about the day of judgment, um, uh, it, it's really common. What's, what's the first question? If somebody's talking about Judgment Day, the end, of the, the end of time, Armageddon, the first question that we all naturally ask is what? When? Maybe it's not as obvious to you guys, right? Don't you want to know when it's going to happen? Right? That's our natural inclination. It's like, okay, well, tell me when. Tell me when's it going to happen and like where. Is, is, there, is there location significance? Does Jerusalem... Uh, you know, do we need to be waiting at the foot of the mountain in Jerusalem? Is, is he going to descend? And do we need to have the, the perfect spotless red heifer prepared for sacrifice? And do we need to rebuild the temple? And, and you know, where is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? But, but that's not what he wants us worried about. He wants us to, to say, hey, what do I need to do to make sure I'm ready? And how should I live? In light of that truth, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where. Even if I think I know, it's probably going to be different than what I'm expecting. But but. But I do need to know what I need to do about it. And I need to know how I should be living in light of that truth. So we need to, we need to change our questions. And what he says, he gives a number of things that are very helpful. First of all, he says, what, what sort of people are, ought we to be living lives of holiness and godliness? You can revert back to, to chapter 1 for that, right? He says, he says, therefore, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. I got it memorized. Doesn't mean I'm living it out, right? <laughs> but at least I know the list in my head, so I'm trying. He says that, that's what holy and godly living looks like. Step one, have you, have you cracked open the book <laughs> to see what we're called to do? 
do you even know what godly and, and holy living is meant to look like? If we, if we don't read his word, we won't know a picture of what he wants from us, right? But, but, but we're called to live lives of godly, godliness and holiness. Second, we're, we're called to wait for, for that and, and hasten the day. Now, this is kind of a fascinating idea that um, I'm going to jump into and jump back out of real quickly, right? But I thought that um, the study notes in the ESV study Bible actually, I think, captured the essence of this really well. This word hastening um, it means to hurry by extra effort. It's what I do with my kids on Sunday morning trying to get them to church, right? I, I hurry by extra effort, get into the car, right? Like grab your baby dolls, like, you know, whatever, like all the stuff. I'm hastening them to church, right? Well, how do we hasten the day of the Lord? Here's what it says. It says, the com- hastening the coming of the day of God suggests that by living holy lives, Christians can actually affect the time of the Lord's return. That does not mean, of course, that the Lord does not foreknow and foreordain when Jesus will return. But when God set that day, he also ordained that it would happen after all of his purposes for saving believers and building his kingdom in this present age have been accomplished. And those purposes are accomplished when he works through his human agents to bring them about. Therefore, from a human perspective, when Christians share the gospel with others and pray and advance the kingdom of God in other ways, they do hasten the fulfillment of God's purposes, including Christ's return. What he's saying is, like, from our human perspective, we don't know all things like God does, but, for, but, but here's what we know. God is going to accomplish some things before he returns, and the way that he accomplishes things here on earth is through his followers, through us. We're his, his vessels. We're his instruments. We're his ambassadors. We're the ones that he uses. And so the more that I commit to being obedient to him and doing the thing that he calls me to do and to telling others about Jesus and, and praying and bringing about the kingdom, in essence, I am... I am checking off boxes that need to be checked so that the Lord can return. And so from our perspective, we're hastening the day of the Lord because we want it to come. Again, in in Matthew 24 and verse 14, he said this. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so there are those who are pouring their lives out to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. We have the, the privilege uh, as elders, we just agreed this week to, uh, to commit to financial support of Nick and Kathy Borio, who are working with Ethnos 360 and who, who've been out in training. They're going to be back around this summer. You're going to see them. Um, but ultimately, they're going out onto the field to help train missionaries to go to, to, to people whose uh, people group has not been reached with the gospel. They don't have the Bible in their language. They don't have somebody who can witness about Jesus to them. And they're, they're strategically pouring their lives out for that purpose. Uh, at the first service, we had uh, Rick Fraley and his family here. They're uh, international missionaries uh, in Asia. I met with him this week, and uh, he was telling me about they, they've planted over 10,000 churches in Asia. It's amazing, right? Praise God that we've got people that are pouring their lives out. And when you give here to the church, uh, we send money back out into these things because we're investing. We're trying to hasten the day of the Lord uh, to come. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, which in other words means don't fall too in love with this world as it is. Now, uh, this week, um, Wynn got me up extra early the one morning, and, um, and um, I've been trying to talk, train into watching Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, uh, but she's like, isn't that a cartoon? I don't think I want to watch that. <laughs> Anybody seen that in here? Like, yeah, right, so... A phenomenal movie, right? I'm there at like 6.45 in the morning, like wiping tears away. Like, oh, this is so beautiful. Here, 
here's what I loved about that. The things that were beautiful in that movie were a reflection of the greatest story, right? Like, like selfless sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's a reflection of, of G, what Jesus has done, which is why it resonates so powerfully, right? This, this idea of like finding your calling and your purpose and your identity and living in who you were meant to be. Uh, it, it's a reflection of what's so beautiful about Christianity. And so when we see that reflected in the world, yeah, we celebrate that and we love that. I don't hate the world. There's lots of things I love in this world, but I hate the wickedness. I, I hate the brokenness. Man, if you, if you watch the news, just every morning there's headlines about, you know, the missing girl and you're hoping for the best, but, but when she turns up, it's, it's kind of what you thought would happen, right? Like, the, the baby this week. There's so many things in the news this week that you just look at and you just, your heart is broken for the state of our world and the, the brokenness. And he says that we should be longing for a world where righteousness dwells. So yeah, there's glimpses of things that we love here, but, but we should be yearning for something so much better, so much more powerful. He says that we should be built, diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Now, we know that, but then we look at the Bible and we say, well, hey, but haven't all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and aren't we all stained by sin? And so how am I going to be found spotless and without blemish? But there's good news over in Ephesians 5. Listen to what it says about what Jesus does for us. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I'm going to get a dig in on some husbands this morning, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's the good news of the Bible that you don't have to clean yourself up, that Jesus is working to clean you up. You just have to participate. You just have to, to, to submit to what he's trying to do in your life, that he does the work. He's the one who makes you clean. He's the one that, so, so don't feel burdened of like, oh man, I, how am I going to ever clean myself? The way you clean yourself up is by submitting to the work of Jesus the, that he wants to do, that he died to do for you. When we stop fighting him and we just allow him to do what, what he wants to do, he will make us spotless and without blemish to be presented. Let me present this from one other angle. Um, uh, I get to do a wedding in about a week. I'm excited about it. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy about weddings is that on a wedding day, um, you know, uh, whose day is the wedding day? It's good. A lot of male voices understood. That's smart, right? The wedding is the bride's day, right? And not only should, should her, her fiancé know that, but, but everybody in her family knows and understands that, right? And so especially if one of her sisters is the maid of honor, like I know sisters bicker, sisters fight, sisters are competitive, all these things, but what I've had the privilege of witnessing is that on the wedding day, uh, the sister who's the maid of honor understands that it's her sister's day. And so what does she do? She straightens out her train. She holds her flower for her. She goes and gets her a plate of, of, of appetizers to make sure that she gets a chance to eat. She does everything. She reorients her, her schedule, her money, her priorities around making sure that that's her day. Well, the Bible describes judgment day. Another word for it is the day of the Lord. And so while there's a lot of scary pictures, right, of, of of, of judgment, of, of stars and earth melting away, of fire raining down. Uh, but ultimately what it is, it's the day when, when everyone will understand that it's really all about God. <laughs> it's his day. 
where anything that's separated from him has to be removed because it's about him. Now, here's the question. When you think about your own life and you think about this wedding scenario and your relationship with Jesus, are you the bride and he's the, the maid of honor? <laughs> or is he the bride and you're the maid of honor? I know it's weird because he's a guy and I'm saying bride, but just go with me on this, right? Do you think about it that, like, man, it's all about me and Jesus? I mean, I'm glad I connected with Jesus because he's really helping me to, to, to get all my stuff where I want it to be, to accomplish the desires of my heart, to make my life better, to, to, to me, 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 me? Or do you think, man, since I met Jesus, I recognize it's not about me now. My, I want to make sure that, that he's arrayed in a way that people can look at him and see him beautiful, picture perfect, right? I, I want to make sure that, that all the guests are taken care of because it, it honors it, right? Which one is a closer depiction of what your relationship looks like with Jesus, because here's the thing, when the day of the Lord comes, if, if you think that you're the bride and he's the one who's serving you, the day of the Lord is going to be a rude awakening. It's going to be harsh. But if you're already positioning yourself to live your life in a way where like, no, it's about him, and I can't wait for the day of the Lord to come, and I'm going to start, I know the whole world isn't there yet, but I'm there today. I'm, I'm living to put him first. And, and I'm going to orient my life around him, and I'm going to make sure that he is glorified and he is lifted up. And there's nothing worse than a, than a maid of honor that's trying to steal the spotlight <laughs> on the wedding day, right? And so are you living your life in a way that, that points to and honors and glorifies Jesus? How should we live? That's how we should live. That's the sort of lives we should live. Number three, uh, so, so the first one, I didn't do a good job of recapping, and I had people ask me earlier, right? We need to understand our motivation, number one. Number two, we need to ask the right questions. Number three, we need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. If you're here and, and you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, here's your story. You were born as a sinner. Uh, you went through life. You came to a point where you realized that you needed Jesus to be your Savior. You submitted to him, and you received salvation. And in that period before you received salvation, he was patient with you. And thank God that he didn't come before you came to realize how much you needed him and before you received that free gift. And so if he's slow in coming, if you're like, Jesus, I'm good, right? It's like when you go down to the airport and you, you park in the cheap airport parking and you're waiting for that trolley to come around and you're like, where? I'm ready. Where is the trolley, right? If that's uh, your Christian faith, right, where you're like, hey, I'm, I'm good to go. I got my bags packed. I'm ready for heaven. Where's the trolley? Maybe it's not because he's off doing other stuff. Maybe it's because he's being patient because there's other people that he wants to bring into the kingdom. Maybe you need to look at the person in your life that you're so angry and frustrated with, and maybe, maybe you need to think about, like, hey, God hasn't called them to judgment. Maybe it's because it, it, there's still time. There's still time to, for them to, to hear and to repent and to turn to him. But also, don't confuse God's love and patience as ambivalence affirmation or acceptance. If he's patient with you while you're in your sin, don't assume it's because he doesn't care. Don't assume it's because he, he, he thinks, yeah, no, it's fine. Just keep it. It's, it's cool. If he's patient, it's because he's giving you time to repent. He's giving you time to turn. And don't make the mistake of thinking that, that, that it's all good. He says that Paul affirms these things in his letters. But sometimes it's difficult to understand. Uh, and so here we see this, this affirmation of a couple things. Number one, that, that, that people will twist the truth to try and get it to say what they want it to say. 
But what Peter's saying is, hey, I'm saying the same thing that Paul's saying to you. We are all in line with the will of the Lord on this, that, that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, uh, that we put our hope in him, that, that he, he hasn't returned yet because he's still got saving work to do. And he also says that, that, that they twist it as they do other scriptures, meaning that Peter was affirming that Paul's letters were viewed as scripture. That Peter was saying, hey, these letters that Paul's written to the church, they have the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon them, that we value them and look at them and learn from them in the same way that we do with the Old Testament scriptures. And so here we see uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the years immediately following Jesus' death, this affirmation of the New Testament scriptures. How do you view God's patience? Do you view it as, uh, uh, do, do, you feel, do you view his patience as salvation, as an opportunity? Because here's the thing, like, man, if you're sinning, I know you can go into the, the Facebook echo chamber and you can find people to affirm that you're exactly right. I know you can do a Google search and find a blog written by somebody in, in their basement, um, you know, affirming whatever heretical view you want to kind of hang on to. Whatever. But, but here's the thing. If you're going against God's will, you know it. Deep down. You know it. And, and, and let me encourage you with this. He doesn't always... Uh, Jesus has the power to break the power of sin over our life. And he can do it instantly. But it doesn't, happen, it, it doesn't always happen instantly. And so really what it is, it's the shift from saying, hey, I'm going to side with my sin against God. I'm going to coddle my sin. I'm going to try and justify and rationalize and defend and, and back up my sin and, and keep God at arm's length. Instead, it's saying like, hey, you know what? Nope, I'm on God's side against my sin. It's still in my life. I want to get rid of it. I'm asking him by his power to take it out of me. I don't want it there anymore. I still wrestle with it. But I am aligned with God against my sin. And when it its head pops up. I fight against it through the power of Jesus in me. Um, that's what repentance looks like. It doesn't always mean immediate perfect holiness, but what it does mean is an is, is interior shift uh, to fight with God against your sin instead of fighting against God to defend your sin. Maybe that's the shift that you need to make today. Maybe there's something in your life that you're, man, I can't quit it today. I don't know how to get rid of it, but I, but I know it's got to go. Jesus, by your power, help me to do that. I commit to battle with you against this. And just watch what he does. Watch how he changes things. Fourth thing, we need to grow. This is how he ends the letter. He says that, that we should grow in the grace of Jesus, sort of more fully understand and live in, in our identity that we're saved by grace. Uh, I, I see God doing good things here at this church in growing leaders, uh, in developing people, in, in, in expanding ministry. And, and a piece of that is that he uh, gave me the position of pastor by a sheer move of his grace, right? I didn't have the resume. I didn't have the seminary degree. I, I, I didn't have field experience. Um, and, but but God, through his grace, God called me into this position. And so because of that, that's been ingrained into the DNA of our church where we say, hey, uh, let's look at somebody's heart before we look at their resume. Let's look at their level of obedience and proactive pursuit of Christ before we look at their potential and the things that we think that they could do, right? Um, it, when we live in grace, when we recognize that we don't deserve anything that we have, it frees us to extend that grace to others, and, and it frees us to let God be in control, 
and by his grace, he'll do that more and more and more. We need to grow in grace. We also need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, to know his words and his life through the word. That's why we're inviting you. Man, if you don't know, if you don't know Jesus, uh, grab your Bible, grab one of these Explore books, join us in the month of July. Let's spend 21 days reading what Jesus said, reading what Jesus did understanding who he is and what he's calling us to do. That's how we come to know him. But, but then another piece of knowing him uh, is by obeying him. You know, I can, I can tell you that the best way to make a steak is, is uh, in a cast iron skillet in your oven. And you may agree or you may disagree or, or you may argue with me, but until you try it, <laughs> until you cut into the steak, until you eat it, and you taste it and you see that I'm right, then... <laughs> Then you'll say, I, I thought you were right, but now I know that you're right. And it's the same way with God's word, right? When we're obedient to him, sometimes we're like, man, Jesus, I don't know why you call me to do this. I don't get that. It's not really what I want to do. But you know what? I'm just going to do it. If you would make the radical commitment today to say, hey, Jesus, I'm just going to do whatever you say. Whatever I read in your word and whatever you convict, convict me in my heart, I'm just going to do it. Man, when you start to radically begin to obey him in that way, it, it's like taste and see. You do it, and then you begin to see, like, oh, now I understand why you told me to do that. And it's amazing. But if you don't ever obey, if you don't put it into practice, then you'll never know. And just like working out, like the first, the first few times, it's not fun at all. <laughs> right? It's miserable. You might throw up. <laughs> you might pass out. You might be sore the next day. But ultimately, you come to a place where you're like, ah, now I understand it. Know him through obedience. Know him through prayer. And the Bible says to know him through his righteous suffering. We just got Paul Miller's uh, new book down in the, the resource room down there. It's, a, it's called The J-Curve. It's about dying and resurrecting. And what he argues in that book is that that's the normal path of the Christian life. The Christian life is a continual dying to yourself, to your own desires, to your own needs, putting other one in the, someone else in the higher place and yourself in the lower place, accepting that and then allowing Jesus to resurrect you. To put yourself in positions where you say, hey, Jesus, if you don't redeem this, it just won't be redeemed. It's, it's in your hands. I'm trusting to you. And when you do that, you get to know him better because that's the path that he took for us. Conclude with this. The final words, he says this. He says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so what we see here is this, this temporal element of Jesus as Lord and Savior now and into eternity. When we think about Jesus as the Savior, we think about what he did for us on the cross and what he will do for us in the day of judgment when we stand before the Lord. Because of what he did on the cross in the past, in the future, when we stand before the Lord, we believe with faith that we will be accepted. So Savior is past and future, but the present is all about Jesus as our Lord. It's about being obedient to him today. It's about living in his kingdom today. It's about understanding that today is the day of the Lord and that we should treat him as the one who it's all about today. And when we live in imbalance, if we emphasize Jesus as Savior only, we say, yeah, hey, back here, back then, I, I submitted to Jesus, I got my ticket to heaven, um, and in the future I'm going to cash that in and say, hey, because of Jesus, you accept me, but right now, uh, I don't know, I'm just kind of hanging out. <laughs> I'm just kind of waiting. You know, I'm just kind of killing time. If you, if, you, if you emphasize more strongly Jesus as Lord, you might say, no, I know every command of Jesus. I know everything that he's called us to do. I'm very rigorous and religious in doing everything that he's told me. You've got to be careful that you're not working in a process of, of self-salvation, 
where you begin to believe that because you know everything he said and because you're doing it, that that somehow gains you entry out of your works into the kingdom. We've got to live in the balance. Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus for what he's done in the past, what he's doing today, what he will do in the future. Peter wants us to live these balanced lives, right? The carrot and the stick, they're both, they're both true. We need to embrace both as truth, but, but ultimately the call is to live lives of holiness and godliness so that we can serve others, so that we can hasten the day of the coming of the Lord.